You're listening to episode 103 of Goodwill Hunters, brought to you by Goodwill Media. I'm your host, Rachel Mason Nunn. Today on the show, I'm speaking to Paul Ronalds. Paul is the group CEO of Save the Children Australia and has featured on this podcast before. Paul will be well known to many of you in the international development sector for his take on innovative business models and ways the sector can diversify and transform to meet the growing challenges that we face. I hope you find this discussion insightful and as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on our social media. This will be the last episode of Goodwill Hunters for a little while, so stay tuned for what's to come and of course, keep an eye on our socials as we keep you updated on our next round of episodes. On behalf of my team, I'd like to thank you so much for your support of Goodwill Hunters this year and we hope to be bringing you new episodes as soon as we can. But in the meantime, take care and stay safe and keep going with the conversation with us on social media. Speak soon. Paul, thanks for speaking with me. It's been a challenging year for NGOs, both here in Australia and internationally, uh, with staff cuts and with funding losses due to COVID-19 and the recession more broadly. How do you, as the CEO of a major NGO, start to deal with those challenges? Well, first of all, you need to face into them. Uh, It's really clear that even prior to COVID, uh, our sector's business model was already broken. Many NGOs pre-COVID were only surviving because of their historical investments in fundraising uh, and their financial reserves. And I think, you know, in Australia and and in many other countries, there's simply too many NGOs chasing too few dollars, all generally using the same business model uh, in a sector that's experiencing declining fundraising and a time at a time of escalating costs and demand. And, and that's just a recipe for disaster. And then on top of all of that, in Australia, we've had uh, the foreign aid budget now cut to record lows. Uh, and the sector as itself has faced a number of really significant scandals, allegations of, of sexual exploitation and abuse, uh, even most recently during the Ebola Uh, response. Uh, So we've got to face squarely into the challenges that we face as a sector and really start to think deeply about how we uh, transform the underlying um, organisations that we're responsible for. Let's talk about the staff cuts quickly. When an organisation like Oxfam is able to um, make up to half of their roles redundant, does that create a perception that those roles were somehow superfluous to begin with? Absolutely not. Um, that's not to say that uh, th- there are deficiencies uh, to, to be gained, but uh, I know with Oxfam, uh, they have significantly cut back, for example, their advocacy uh, department. And that advocacy department is likely to be um, uh, a huge loss of really systemic impact uh, on poverty. Uh, We know that our programming is important, but actually to really get significant impact, uh, it's the the work you do in policy and systemic change in campaigning um, that has the the, the biggest impact. And so to see an organisation like Oxfam that has been a great campaigner, a great advocate for the world's poor over many years, having to cut that department, you know uh, they are experiencing really significant pain. Uh, So so it's not just a matter of inefficiency. 
but on the other hand, uh, you do have to cut back in your sort of business as usual uh, areas uh, to be able to fund the investment into um, new business models and new areas. And, and that's one of the most difficult things as I think as, a, as an NGO leader, uh, you have very passionate staff, um, you know that the work that you're doing in, in what might be described as your traditional areas of business are making an impact. And it's really hard to cut those uh, and then to, to move across into perhaps less proven areas that you think that the, the future trends suggest that, that that's where you're going to have greater impact at some time down, down the track very hard call to make, but a very necessary one. If we look at the fact that half of the UK's NGOs are due to close down this year, partly as a result of the impacts of COVID-19, that is an unthinkable change to the NGO landscape. How do we respond to that? And how, how do NGOs start thinking about new and more innovative business models? Well, um, it's going to have very far-reaching effects. Um, I guess, Rachel, the first thing I would say is there's been some commentators in the wake of the financial challenges, the scandals, the localisation agenda um, that have questioned whether NGOs have have served their purpose uh, entirely and whether they're they're actually a model that's passed their use-by date. Uh, And I think we need to to seriously consider that challenge, but I don't think it is um, the case. Uh, In fact, I think if we look around international relations, there's a range of factors that suggest that in some ways international NGOs, like Save the Children, like Oxfam, like World Vision, are needed more now than ever. Um, I've been uh, extraordinarily concerned about the declining um, democracy and, and freedoms that we've seen. So Freedom House uh, has found that 2019 was the, the 14th consecutive year of declining global freedom. And we've seen even since the pandemic uh, a real um, loss of, of democracy and respect for, fu- for human rights. And in this context, uh, strong global advocates like international NGOs uh, are more important Um, than ever. And at their best, international NGOs are really powerful forces for uh, progressive causes. Um, They're less encumbered, uh, I would say, um, by restrictions that are placed on state-based actors. Uh, They can assist domestic groups, uh, access um, international organisations, advocate on, on a global scale that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Uh, And, um, Uh, international NGOs uh, advocate for collective action on issues that that the simply other organisations can't. And at a time when uh, we do need more advocacy around the impact of of the global pandemic, where we do need more advocacy on climate change, this is all really critical stuff. And then finally, I'd say there's just some aid implementation capability of international NGOs that is, is unique. There are some contexts where only international NGOs can be really effective. So all of these uh, give me reassurance that actually uh, there is a really important ongoing role for international NGOs. Um, however, uh, and this is a very big however, Rachel, um, there needs to be really significant change uh, in the way um, that they are currently uh, working. 
Uh, and that change needs to be both what I would call continuous improvement uh, and transformation. So the continuous improvement is around um, the ongoing day in, day out, um, small changes to your business model that help you uh, be more efficient, more effective, meet stakeholder expectations, manage risk, um, all of those sorts of things, uh, as well as the more significant transformational change that's required in, in international NGOs. We'll come back to that point. It's interesting that you say, though, that advocacy is the most critical function of NGOs, and yet it's the one area donors won't pay NGOs to do, and it's also the first area that Oxfam would make staff cuts for. Yeah, it's it's a real conundrum. Um, we know that donors like to fund concrete programs, um, uh, and um, that's their preference, but anyone from an international NGO or, or any NGO for that matter will tell you that the greatest impact that that their organisation will have uh, won't be their programming. It will be the way that they use their programming to be able to advocate for systemic change with governments and, and other major actors. That's where you get the real leverage uh, impact. And it is, I mean, that's one of the most fundamental problems that we face as international NGOs. Uh, we know that's where we're having the greatest impact, but it's the area that it's most difficult to fund. So we have to find a business model that produces sufficient surplus to be able to invest in that advocacy, the systemic change, the policy work uh, that has the greatest impact. Um, and that's not easy. It's not easy. So when you say a business model that creates sufficient surplus, you mean NGOs need to have a revenue stream or a social enterprise function or um, otherwise a more innovative business model that, that brings in kind of a fee-for-service capability? Yes. Yeah, so there's a range of different ways. Um, in some places in the world, uh, and I think, for example, with USAID funding, you've got a significantly large enough margin uh, from USAID projects where you can, I think, invest in advocacy and, and other innovation uh, work uh, off the back of just doing USAID projects. That's not the case, uh, for example, with DFAT. Uh, funding. The margins are just too thin. Uh, so you have to find alternative sources to be able to fund both uh, advocacy and innovation, which I think are the two sort of big pieces. Uh, and those uh, can be uh, from other social enterprises that are able to generate a, a return. Um, it may seem old fashioned, but uh, say the children runs 80 um, op shops, secondhand uh, stores across Australia, uh, and we generate um, more than a million dollars a year of profit from those stores um, that we are able to use to fund our advocacy and innovation and other sorts of things. It's a really important million dollars. And that's on top, of course, uh, of the other good social um, things that the that those op shops are producing. I mean, the, the cut, uh, the reduced level of uh, uh, waste from, from reusing clothes and those sorts of things. So it's those sorts of models. But for us, uh, we're also been examining uh, true social enterprises in the sense of, you know, our Centre for Evidence and Implementation, Childwise, uh, Library for All, uh, that are all looking to, to generate uh, margins um, while still doing our core mission work. And of course, that's been a big focus for you as CEO of Save the Children to look at diversifying um, the revenue streams and the business model. But are you seeing enough business model innovation across the sector more broadly? A absolutely not. Um, 
if you look at our sector now, for the most part, it looks very similar to the way that it looked 20 years ago, just a lot bigger. Uh, and unfortunately, um, I think many charities, despite their innovative beginnings, have become what you might uh, call radical ideas stuck in, in concrete. But um, with COVID, uh, they now face, I think, a really stark choice. Uh, and one commentator essentially described it as either transform, die well, or die badly. Um, so you know, there's no doubt that we need more innovation in, in the social sector. Um, new technologies combined with limited progress on some of the, the most significant problems that we face mean that, that new solutions are required. But it's not just innovation. I think this is a mistake that lots of organisations, particularly large international NGOs like Save the Children, can make. Um, what we really need is innovation at scale. Um, there was a fantastic article uh, probably 12 months or so ago in the Stanford Social Innovation Review by Greg Kusa, uh, who said, uh, without bringing more rigour and resources to scaling impact efforts, the do-gooder industry will never make the exponential leaps needed to bring social innovation to millions of people. Uh, innovation is a dime of dozen. Scaling innovation is the diamond in the rough. Uh, and that certainly really resonates very, very strongly uh, with me. Uh, we need more innovation at scale and we need funding sources that are able to get, uh, fund that innovation at scale. Uh, it's one of the reasons why Save the Children recently launched uh, our impact fund. It really came out of a frustration uh, that after setting up a series of social enterprises uh, and, and looking to scale up innovation, there simply wasn't the, the patient capital that we needed to take those otherwise successful innovations to the sort of scale that we wanted uh, to have the, the level of impact um, that our ambition required. So in sum, are you saying that NGOs need to adopt more innovative business models and identify new revenue streams that can finance the critical role that NGOs need to play in the advocacy space? So I would say that there's three critical roles that international, large international NGOs play. The, the first is the way that they advocate for more effective collective action that we've spoken about. The, the second is the way that they help domestic groups circumvent domestic political constraints. So, so that's supporting the advocacy of others. And then I think the third area is is the classic aid implementation capability. Um, th there are simply some areas that uh, governmental organisations struggle to be able to uh, access effectively. And we can talk about examples, for example, like Northern Syria, where because of complex uh, international relations, uh, UN agencies and others weren't able to effectively work in Northern Syria for a significant period of time. And so it was only the large international NGOs uh, doing cross-border work from Turkey and other places that were able to meet the humanitarian needs of the population there. So there are some unique um, roles that I think international NGOs play as well. So th those are the three for me. I'm going to ask you a potentially contentious question here. I think that Save the Children has become quite synonymous with mergers and acquisitions. Um and perhaps sometimes that comes from a place of criticism that SAVE is somehow on a merger and acquisition agenda. How 
do you, as the CEO of SAVE, respond to those kinds of comments from the sector? Yes. So, first of all, um, I, I don't shy away from uh, the the role that we play uh, in helping uh, small entrepreneurial initiatives get to scale. In fact, I actually think that's a critical role that large international NGOs should play. And in some ways, it's scandalous um, that, that we haven't and that it actually is so rare. Um, we have this huge platform uh, and um, we shouldn't think that we are going to be internally the source of, of all good innovation. We should be looking around and saying, who else is doing some really terrific things that if we get behind, we can help take to scale? And that's really what our, our um, many of our mergers have been about. Uh, Hands-on Learning, for example, was expressly about helping a, a small organisation with a great model, a really strong evidence base, uh, get to scale. Similarly with Library for All, uh, a small ed tech uh, company uh, working in the Pacific and, and elsewhere, uh, ready to scale because they'd done the, the hard yards, um, they'd could gain the evidence, um, they were ready to go to the next level, but they couldn't access the large international donors that Save the Children uh, was able to uh, able to access. So absolutely, um, I see it as a core role of an organisation like Save the Children to help scale up successful social um, innovations. Um, fr from a leadership perspective, um, again, um, I'm not too concerned about what might be seen as sort of implicit criticism. I've always believed that real leadership is, is dangerous and it almost always uh, involves making people feel uncomfortable uh, and it often <laughs> involves disappointing people. Um, the word itself, uh, if you if you look back through linguistics, um, the word leadership comes from the word lead, uh, which is the name given to the person who uh, carries the flag in front of the army going into battle and is nearly always the first person that's killed in the enemy attack. So um, leadership has got to be about being prepared to do things differently and um, to be uh, listening carefully to, to the criticisms of others and the views of others, but forming uh, an evidence-based um, view about what's going to be best for your mission, not the organisation, but for your mission. Okay, so to finish and agree or disagree, um, the traditional INGO model is permanently broken. Uh, it, it's not broken everywhere yet, um, but it is going to be increasingly uh, unsustainable all over the world. So, and, and Australia is absolutely at the forefront of that brokenness, if you like. And so to start addressing that brokenness, what would you suggest? Well, I think there's probably got to be five different things that an international NGO needs to do. I mean, the first is that it needs to make sure that its foundations are strong and every international NGO's foundations are based on its legitimacy uh, and its values as an, as an organisation. Uh, international NGO's legitimacy is at the heart of its ability to raise funds, to advocate to governments, which we've just spoken about is so critical, uh, and to fulfil its, its mission in, uh, in communities. Uh, so, so that's absolutely uh, critical. Um, and it's why, for example, the, the recent scandals and the examples of staff misconduct at, at international NGOs has been such a problem. It creates such a strong dissonance between an organisation's values uh, and, its, and its mission. So you, you've got to get that absolutely right um, to be able to... Um, uh, 
move forward. Um, second, you've got to work on improved localization. There is no doubt um, that um, that's an area where international NGOs would think you would think in theory were uh, had a competitive advantage, but they have dropped the ball on this. I think um, so. Good program design's got to incorporate your exit strategy. It's got to incorporate your long-term long sustainability right from the outside. Of course, you're employing local people. Uh, you're building their capacity. You're leveraging local governance um, mechanisms um, to make sure that you are truly um, uh, no longer going to be required there. Um, you've got to, um, thirdly, use um, be prepared to use uh, technology in, in new ways. Uh, and, and this is an area where I think international NGOs have been particularly uh, behind the eight ball. Um, they have uh, really struggled to harness the opportunities from, from new technologies. And there's a range of reasons for it that, we, again, we could talk about at length. You know, this notion that money should be spent on people and that somehow tech is, is overhead. Um, you know, the, the underinvestment in, in, in where the trends are going. Uh, and it just always astonishes me uh, at some level, um, that most NGOs are sort of focused a year away, not five and ten years away, and, and what business models are required in five or ten years' time. I mean, there's 27,000 people joining the internet for the first time every day. Uh, over the next five years, that's going to just transform the planet. And there's a real question about, well, how do we need to deliver our, our work, our advocacy, our programming and other things in, in that new context? Um, there's also this sort of perception that, that tech doesn't work uh, because uh, I think it is true that many early initiatives were overhyped and they failed to live up to their, their potential. So uh, we've got to use technology better and we've got to have the business model innovation that we've spoken about uh, already, uh, Rachel, um, and we've got to be able to take that innovation to scale. Um, so if we can get those... Uh, five things right, I think we'll see uh, a real transformation of international NGOs and we'll see them being able to fulfil their promise uh, in, in the next five and 10 and 15 years and beyond, hopefully. Excellent. Thanks, Paul. And I know that our listeners can keep an eye out for a paper from you in the next couple of months. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, I've been doing a lot of reflection on uh, the future of international NGOs and what's going to be required to, to make sure that we are effective as organisations uh, for decades to come. Uh, so, um, yeah, hopefully that'll be out before Christmas. Great. Paul, thanks for your time. <laughs>